2: More than two and a half million Americans are living with congenital heart disease across the country. We talk with a heart specialist and two Connecticut women with the condition to find out more. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. i'm brian scott smith it affects one in every 100 people and it's called congenital heart disease but what exactly is it we talk with dr robert elder a cardiac specialist at yale new haven health and director of their adult congenital heart program and two of his patients both born with chd so joining us on connecticut east this week is dr robert elder from yale medical dr elder thanks for joining us
0: yeah thanks for having me brian
2: And also we have two of your patients with us as well. And that's Dawn and Colette, who are both based in Connecticut. Uh, Ladies, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank
1: you. Thank
2: you. So we're going to be talking about something called congenital heart disease, which a lot of people, if they don't have it or have somebody who actually has it, probably know little about it. But uh, Dr. Elder, this is a specialism of yours. So tell us more about what congenital heart disease is.
0: Thanks, Brian. So congenital heart disease is believe it or not the most common birth defect, about one in a hundred people is born with some form of congenital heart disease. And the good news is, is that our patients who are children do really well with modern medical care and can thrive well into adulthood. But the reality is that sometimes as adults, our patients need extra help and extra support as they get older in terms of their cardiac needs and their medical needs. And sometimes that ends up for certain patients needing a heart transplant in the long run. Thankfully, that's not the majority of patients with congenital heart disease, but that is true for some of my patients with congenital heart disease, including Dawn and Colette, who are here with us
2: today. So let's talk to uh, these two fine ladies. Now, uh, Colette, I'm going to turn to you first, if that's okay. You've already had your heart transplant. Tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, can you remember, obviously, when you were actually diagnosed with congenital heart disease as well?
1: Not necessarily when I was diagnosed with it, as they said, I was born with it. So it's just been something that's a part of me my entire life. It was normal for me. So
2: how did it affect your life at all?
1: I would like to say it didn't much in the beginning. Well, except for a couple of open heart surgeries, I feel like I lived a fairly normal life. I didn't have many limitations, but there were times that I knew where I was limited, where I wasn't able to maybe keep up with other kids. And then as I got older, I started having issues. I had a pacemaker put in when I was 19. That was kind of hard because I wondered you know, if I need this at this age, what does that mean going forward? And then I got married and had kids. And it just was a slow progression of my heart failing.
2: So tell us about, you know, the heart transplant. When when did you have that? And, and, you know, obviously, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah, I had that in November of 18, 2018. And it was a big deal. And it wasn't easy. But I feel amazing now. And it was worth every bit of it. I mean, even better than I ever felt with my old heart, even at its best. It's nice having a normal heart.
2: So Dawn, let's turn to you because you have just recently had your heart transplant. Tell us a little bit about that if you don't mind.
3: Yeah, I had my heart transplant on August 12th. So it's almost a month. It's very tough. I have to learn how to walk and climb stairs and get strong all over again. But each day or each every couple of days, I find myself doing a little bit more, getting stronger. I think the hardest task is going to be climbing the stairs because I need help with that right now. But uh, I know I'll do it. And uh, I'm looking forward to feeling good again.
2: The other thing I wanted to put to you, Dawn, as well, I mean, you know, Colette said to us that it didn't impact her life you know, unduly, although, you know, having a, a pacemaker fitted at 19 is, you know, I think a lot of people would consider that's that's a big deal. How did congenital heart disease? How was it for, for you to like growing up? You know, how did it affect your life?
3: Well, they found it when I was 11 years old. And it's called physical. And then I had to proceed to start going to different doctors. And uh, that's when they discovered what it was. They pulled me out of gym. And stopped me from doing literally everything. But I was the kind of kid that didn't listen. And I pretty much did what I wanted to do. And um, I got married very young. I had children. I lived a normal life. But, you know, you do start slowing down. I did have my first pacemaker put in at 19. I had 11 of them. But I never had any surgery on my heart. So I lived with like in general heart disease until 64.
0: Yeah, I think one of the wonderful things about Dawn and Colette and their story is you can hear what remarkable women they are and what survivors, and not only survivors, but just thriving with this condition. And I think that's a really important message that it may be really scary for families and patients to learn that they were born with a heart condition, whether you're a baby or you're 11 when you learn that. But here are two successful women who've lived their life, who had marriages and kids. And and, and I think that's really a remarkable testament to both of them. But it's also important to recognize, I think, that the congenital heart issues that you're born with can affect you and may affect you earlier in your life than typical heart problems that people get with acquired cardiovascular disease that may affect people more in their later years in their 70s and 80s.
2: And Robert, let me put this question to you, obviously as a specialist, do we know why people are born with holes in their hearts and whatever? I mean, you know, we we know a lot about so many other things, but do we know why this happens?
0: It's a good question. It's probably a very complicated genetic answer to that question. Um, It's not a simple thing. You know, the heart to form into the four chambers, the two atrium, the two ventricles with all the valves has to do a lot of complex manipulations early on in fetal development, around eight weeks of fetal development, it has to do a lot of looping and changing. And if there's any subtle changes in that process, you can be born with some form of complicated heart disease. And as I said before, it's the most common birth defect. And it can be something relatively simple, like a valve problem, or it could be something relatively complex that that may affect individuals for the rest of their lives.
2: And as it's something that's, you know people are born with uh, and diagnosed early. I mean, even Dawn said, you know, she was 11 when it was finally sort of diagnosed for her. So uh, these people then obviously get the care of a a pediatric specialist, which often like carries on throughout the rest of their life.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, we certainly, I think a I think most people avail themselves of pediatric specialists, but I think one of the important things to realize is that the field that I'm a specialist in, adults with congenital heart disease, is a relatively new field. And there are many times along the pathway for patients where they get lost, they may be feeling good or living their life or moving or going to college or getting married or having kids, and that they may not necessarily be receiving care from a specialist who understands the nuances of the congenital heart disease with which they were born. So for example, I met both Colette and Dawn further on in their lives when uh, they were having some problems and, and really needed someone that understood the nuance of their congenital heart disease. You know, Colette, I was thinking about when I met you three or four years before your transplant and, uh, and you know, you were starting to get a little more sick. And I think you were maybe headed down a a little bit of a different
2: path before I met you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Tell us a little bit more about, about that path, if you don't mind, Collette.
1: I had had arrhythmias and things like that. And we have tried different medications and ablation, you know, a lot of intervention. I was still seeing a cardiologist my entire life. I definitely think that helped also there at Yale. And It just, I was losing energy, strength. I was tiring out very easily, you know, and as I kept getting a little bit older, it just was getting worse. Doing stairs was hard, bending over just to pick something up. And I ended up having a, a medical issue emergency and on a vacation. And that's when my cardiologist put me in touch with Dr. Elder, put me on the path to transplant.
2: And as you said, you know, once you had that transplant, I mean, it basically changed changed your life and and clearly the same for Dawn uh, as well. You said, obviously, your own lives, both of you, so like it, it obviously did have impacts on there. So the, what did friends and family, you know, say about all of this? Because like I said, they would know about this because clearly, you know, both of you have, uh, you know, congenital heart disease, but so many people don't know about this condition. So, you know, how did your friends and family deal with this as well?
1: It's funny, as I was growing up, I felt I did not tell people about it. I tend to hide it. When I met my husband, I didn't actually tell him right off. And I just never made an issue of it, is all I can say. And he's been wonderful. I mean, he's been with me for the past 35 years through all of it where it really started to go downhill. My family's wonderful. They will do anything to take care of me. You know, as I said, as I was getting older, there were a couple of ambulance rides and family having to pitch in to take care of something that I had done. So they've been wonderful. They've been an awesome support, even my kids, even when they were younger. And now that they're older, even they're
2: they're wonderful. And Dawn, what about you? I know that you've got a couple of family members with you as we're recording this interview. Tell us a little bit about, you know, their journey with you on this.
3: My kids at you know, they grew up with it, and uh, I didn't tell a lot of people about it either. They knew I had a heart condition, but I just knew everything was kind of backwards. I didn't really know a lot about it until I went on a transplant list back in '04. and uh, but the family, they're there for me. They'll do anything, very supportive, anything I need. they've been there through everything. And I didn't really start going downhill until the past few years where I was having a hard time bending and walking and doing everything normal in life. You know, you try to shug it off, but, uh, you know, then you end up going to the hospital. And your number is now no good. So they put you in and, and you wait. You wait for the transplant.
0: Brian, another thing I hear in this story from Dawn and Colette, which I think rings true, is that congenital heart disease is often hiding in the shadows and doesn't get the recognition that it should. Like most people don't realize that it's as common as one in a hundred people that are born with it. And I think some people choose to talk about it. Some people don't choose to talk about it, but it doesn't have the same notoriety that for example, childhood cancer does, even though it's much, much more common than childhood cancer. And I think there's not always a lot of visual clues to it along the way. So I think Um, doing things like having this conversation or raising awareness through the heart walk or other avenues are really important so that congenital heart disease is recognized for the important role that it plays in people's lives.
2: Indeed. And the other thing I wanted to put to both you ladies is out of all of this, and you both sound absolutely amazing, so congratulations for, you know, getting your transplants. and, And clearly, you know, this has, as you've both said, turned both your lives around. Out of this, of course, came this friendship. You got to know one another. Tell us a little bit about that. Colette, perhaps you want to start.
1: Well, Dr. Elder had contacted me and asked me if I would speak with one of his patients. She had given him permission, and I was more than happy to. And we spoke a few times. We were texting, and then she ended up in the hospital where she waited quite a while for her heart. And I would visit and keep in touch with her. It's, it's maybe for her more, but it was nice to be able to relate to somebody who was going through the same thing. Not that I wanted her to go through it, but I mean, I'm hoping I encouraged her a little bit and said, no matter what, you're going to, you're going to get through it. It's going to get better. Trust me. I didn't believe in anybody either when I was doing it.
2: And Dawn, tell us about, you know, your side to this friendship story.
1: It was
3: very nice that Dr. Elder hooked me up with her, and uh, she's been a great support system. And um, she answered a lot of my questions, and it was very nice uh, meeting her and having her as a friend oh. and going through this with her too.
2: I know Dawn, as you were saying, you've only just recently had the heart transplant, so obviously you're you're taking it easy and and, and you know getting your strength back. And, and I know obviously COVID is around, so of course that adds complications. Do, do you get an opportunity to to see one another? Because we're not saying whereabouts in the state that you live, but you both live in Connecticut, but you live a little bit of distance from uh, one another. Do you get an opportunity to, to, to meet with, with each other?
3: At this point, only when I was in the hospital. I have a lot of appointments right now, and, uh, and Clet's busy right
1: now. So we will in the future. Yes, I, like, I actually got, got her address and. Told her I'm going to come down and visit, but I know she has a a lot of appointments because I've been there.
2: I mean, I'm guessing, obviously, as as we're talking through, you know, technology, technology obviously is helpful as well. So at least you can stay yeah. in, in touch that way. Um, you know, even if you you can't physically see one another. Colette, I want to quickly um, ask you this question. There is a walk, uh, it's going to be the first time here in Connecticut that it's going to happen. It's the Adult Congenital Heart Association, uh, walk for congenital heart disease, obviously, to help raise awareness. You're walking in this, I believe. Tell us why you decided to do that. And and, you know, how, how big and how long is this walk?
1: To be honest, I don't know how long the walk is. Maybe Dr. Elder can tell me.
2: Well, it's it's only a
0: mile, but I love the fact that you signed up for the walk and were willing to do it no matter what the length was. I think that's <laughs> a good sign that you're doing quite well. And my, my hope is that Dawn will be there and ready to do it in the next year, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm hoping. Um, I can do a mile really easy. I did a three-mile walk not, uh, last year, and... I just I like Dr. Elder. It is just really nice to bring attention to this. And I can walk. And that's a very nice feeling too.
2: And Dawn, we said, you know, obviously hopefully next year you you'll look forward to to doing that. Again, you know, do you feel that something like this, even though you can't take part this year, that you know, that it is important that, you know, people get to understand more about, you know, congenital heart disease?
3: It is. I wish I could be there this year, but obviously I can't, but I am looking forward to next year so I can um, go in it and uh, raise awareness to, to this kind of condition.
2: And Robert, obviously, you're going to be taking part in this. Why is it important? You know, why is it taking so long? Do you think for for you know it to happen here in Connecticut? Because we have some of the best doctors. You are one of them. We have some of the best care for people with congenital heart disease, clearly in in the Northeast. Why do you think it's taken so long for the, You know, for the walk to happen here?
0: You know, we've been involved with other events and walks through the American Heart Association that are, you know, raising money for heart disease in general. But the thing that's unique about this is this is sponsored by the Adult Congenital Heart Association, which is really an organization to support the one in a hundred adults, you know, that were born with some form of heart disease. And I think that having that unique focus and really highlighting congenital heart disease is a unique opportunity. And the fact that it's in Connecticut in our own backyard is a really uh, good reminder that this is an important part of people's people's lives. And that, you know, we have a lot of treatments and options available to individuals. You know, Dawn and Colette uh, had to go down the transplant route. Thankfully, that's not the case for most individuals with congenital heart disease. And there's a lot of interventions and surgeries and medications and things that can help but sometimes if all of those options fail transplant can really be a life-saving and a life-changing operation and i think for me colette you know having her transplant and signing up to walk and being a part of this is a great example of all the things that are possible and that dawn should look forward to as possible for her future too
2: Well, it's been great talking to all three of you, uh, Dr. Elder, to you and obviously the medical team that, uh, you know, assist people like Dawn and Colette on a daily basis. Thank you, obviously, for everything that you do. I want to give the final word to both Colette and Dawn. Do either of you ladies have messages either for the doctor or to one another that you just want to finish on for us?
1: It was good talking to you, Colette. Yeah, you too, Dawn. I do want to say I know where you're at and it gets better. Trust me. I do. <clears throat> Small improvements. Celebrate them. Yeah, I will.
2: Well, it's been great, as I say, talking to all three of you. And uh, Dawn, we wish you continued success with your recovery after your heart transplant. Colette, congratulations as well on getting your transplant a couple of years ago and success in thank the walk that's coming up. And uh, thank you, the three of you, for being on Connecticut East this week.
1: Thank you. You're
0: welcome.
2: Thanks, Brian. And you can support the work, resources, and specialized care offered by the Adult Congenital Heart Association by donating to them via their website at achaheart.org.
0: You may not think of flu as a serious disease, but complications can lead to severe illness, hospitalization, and even death. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends everyone six months and older get a flu vaccine every year. Vaccines are available at doctor's offices, pharmacies, and local health departments. Protect yourself and your loved ones this flu season. Get a flu shot today.
1: Learn more at cdc.gov slash fight flu.
0: Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041.
2: Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. New research from Eastern Connecticut State University's Environmental Earth Science Department says storms are a greater driver of shoreline change than sea level rise. Brian Oakley is an associate professor from the university and author of the research which looked at a natural barrier called Napa Tree Point in southern Rhode Island and how it has been changed by storms from the New England hurricane of 1938 to today.
0: The takeaway for
1: us on that was that storms are incredibly important in terms of moving the sediment and altering the shoreline. It's not discounting sea level rise but in terms of the coastal processes during storms, it it just dwarfs the sea level rise we've seen over that same time period.
2: Oakley says that Napa Tree Point is important as there is no man-made construction on it and helps to show how long it takes for barriers like this to naturally recover.
1: Because it's been allowed to recover naturally, it's actually been resilient in its own way without us having to do a whole lot about it. I'm always leery of these engineering projects because as we've seen time and time again, they fail. And while they can work in certain storms and protect in certain instances, ultimately
0: the natural system does a lot better than our human systems."
2: He says the research is helpful for shoreline communities in understanding about shoreline erosion and in helping to plan for future development and coastal management. The Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station's Valley Laboratory in Windsor, Connecticut is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Dr. James LaMondia is the director of the Valley Laboratory, which was originally created to help local tobacco farmers in the area. There was a disease that was ravaging the crop in the valley and, the, and they felt the need to really get people up here and do work in the valley,
0: different from uh, the, the main station, which is down in New Haven. So the growers actually purchased the land, sold it to the station border control, helped set up the laboratory and
2: work has been ongoing ever since. Dr. Jason White is the director of the station and says it's a double celebration as they will be updating the facility thanks to a recently agreed biennial multi-million dollar budget. $17.8 million to
0: renovate, facility, and then construct an addition as well because the the structure that you see over here was built in 1940 and has not been updated since. So this will be an opportunity to renovate the, the laboratories that are there and also introduce new laboratories to kind of engage in modern molecular research. So we're very excited about that.
2: Tobacco is still grown in the Connecticut River Valley, called shade tobacco, which is used as wrappers for cigars and exported mainly to Europe. The laboratory also deals with other plants and crops from Christmas trees to pumpkins and helps farmers with pest control and other growing issues. A new report reveals Connecticut is not on track to meet either its 2030 or 2050 greenhouse gas emission goals, and advocates say cutting transportation-related pollution is the way forward. Emily Scott from the Connecticut Public News Service has this report.
0: The Connecticut Greenhouse Gas Emissions Inventory, which reviewed air quality trends from 1990 to 2018, shows that the transportation sector is the state's largest source of pollution mostly from fossil fuel combustion in vehicles. Samantha Danowski of Sierra Club, Connecticut, says it's time for the state to act swiftly to reduce greenhouse gases.
3: We need the administration to really change that policy, to plan to reduce vehicle miles traveled. And that can include things like really prioritizing transit, rail, and bus. Because when you build for more vehicle emissions, you get more vehicle emissions.
0: Connecticut's Global Warming Solutions Act created a target to reduce emissions by 45% below 2001 levels by 2030. The 2018 Governor's Council on Climate Change report unveiled that a 29% reduction in transportation emissions from 2014 is needed to meet the 2030 target. I'm Emily Scott.
2: And in the Connecticut Examiner this week, Connecticut's moratorium preventing utility shutoffs has officially ended, and customers with unpaid balances could soon be receiving notices in the mail that their electricity could be shut off. The state's largest electric utilities Eversource and United Illuminating have reported a total of nearly 900,000 customers with some unpaid electric bills, though a large proportion of those are overdue by less than a month. Data from the Utilities for Customers already enrolled in payment plans show that the average overdue bill is over $1,000, as some customers had bills pile up during the moratorium that prevented utility disconnections for about 18 months. Customers with low incomes or who receive government assistance should be eligible for a financial hardship designation that protects them from having their power shut off between November 1st and May 1st. In the day this week, the Connecticut Port Authority says that it has reached an agreement with energy partners Orsted and Eversource to extend a deadline for obtaining a federal permit for work on the $235.5 million construction project at State Pier in New London. An amendment to a harbour development agreement stated that if an August 31st deadline was not met, the two sides would need to revise the agreement by September 15th to set an alternative construction schedule, cost estimate and or funding plan. Terms of the agreement would have allowed Austed and Eversource to pull a portion of their funding for the project if the federal permit was not in place. The Port Authority said talks have led to a new October 15th deadline. The Port Authority is currently waiting for a federal permit to be granted to them by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who say they may have a decision on the permit by the end of September. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, after more than 10 years of stuttering discussions concerning the future of the town of Killinglees Community Centre and its role in providing recreational programming to residents, voters in November will decide whether to shift the operations of the Parks and Recreation Department to a former school. The town council recently approved setting a November public hearing and special town meeting to be adjourned to November 16 machine vote on whether to bond up to £27.8 to make improvements to the 79 Westfield Avenue building, currently occupied by school district administrative offices and East Connecticut students. Community transmission of COVID-19 remains high across seven of eight Connecticut counties, despite the positivity rate of tests and hospitalizations declining slightly in recent weeks, All of Connecticut, except Fairfield County, was designated as having high community transmission by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This means the areas have more than 100 cases per 100,000 people. In Fairfield County, the community transmission is considered to be substantial, with a case rate of more than 50 per 100,000 people. These designations have been significant in recent weeks after the CDC shifted its guidance to recommend all people, regardless of whether they have been vaccinated, wear masks indoors when they are in areas of substantial and high community transmission. While Governor Lamont has not reinstated a broad indoor mask mandate, the State Department of Public Health echoed the guidance of CDC and recommended people wear masks indoors in Connecticut counties under these designations. The positivity rate of new COVID-19 tests in Connecticut has dropped slightly in recent weeks after an uptick through July and August. And in the Chronicle this week, in an effort to improve digital communications with families, the Wyndham School System recently unveiled a new website and communications system, including a new logo – Aptogy, a school education technology company, has provided the district with its new content management system and its new alert and announcement system working in conjunction with ParentSquare. ParentSquare refers to itself as a safe and secure platform for school districts to use to communicate with families.